Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of See Here is dedicated to the memories of the Ox, John Antwistle, and Looney Mooney, Mr. Keith Moon, Long Live Rock. Episode 73 of the See Here podcast. Welcome. We're part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, a whole bunch of podcasts that talk about music. And this show talks about music-related movies. That's our specialty. If you're on board for the first time, welcome. And I'm joined by three colleagues. Who are they? In Bath, I'm speaking to Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Good evening. In Brantford, Ontario, Mr. Tim Merrill. Who the fuck are you? And over in Detroit, the head of the Projection Booth Empire, Mr. Mike White. The Empire. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being head. It's been a long time since we had you on the show. So when I discovered that you're a lover of all things Huian, I thought, well, this is a good excuse. I'm sure there'll be some Tommy talk in there, Mike. Maybe we should have had Heather as well. So we're here to talk about the 1979 documentary by Jeff Stein called The Kids Are All Right documentary i don't know we'll have a debate as to whether it is or not but it's certainly a film that i'd say is my favorite rock and roll film of all time i'm giving the cards away there but that's why i picked it so what we'll do now is we're going to listen to the trailer for the film and then we'll come back to discuss the kids are all right hello children you know who i am i know who you are and we all know who the hoo-ha <laughs> In. The kids are all right. It's the Mayhem Madness music on.
kids are all right. With 3,000 broken guitars. Don't be alarmed. I think I know what's going on. A million dollars hotel damage. And 15 years on the road. Soon to a theater near you. I don't mind other guys dancing with my girl. That's fine. I know them all pretty well. But I know sometimes I must get out in the here, Bernie over there, Tim somewhere else over there, and Mike, he's way out over there. You're listening to see here. The film we're under discussion is The Kids Are Alright. The director, Jeff Stein, was released in 1979. Now, I know I keep making this mistake, but I'll do it again. The IMDb description is, through concert performances and interviews, this film offers us an inside look at this famous rock group, The Who. It captures their zany craziness and outrageous antics from the initial formation of the group to its major hit, Who Are You?, and features the last performances of drummer Keith Moon just prior to his death. My summary is the greatest video mixtape ever. Let's just get down to the brass tacks. I want to go around the virtual table now. I know, Mike, that you always ask, when was the first time that you watched a particular film on the projection booth? I'm going to double that up with, when was the first time you listened to The Who? And then, when was the first time you saw The Kids Are All Right? Gosh, I don't remember the first time I heard The Who. I didn't really listen to a lot of rock and roll when I was growing up, other than what was on the radio. I mostly remember The Who as being mentioned as the band that caused the big riot in that episode of WKRP in Cincinnati. Not even realizing that it was a real band, because it sounds like a made-up band, right? The Who. Who's going to call their band that? It sounds like an Abbott and Costello joke. Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know. Is on third. You know the guy's oh. name's on the baseball team? Yes. Well, go ahead. Who's on first? Yes. I mean, the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? The guy on first base. <laughs> Who is on first? What are you asking me for? I don't know. I remember really starting to like The Who a lot when I was in college. In our dorm, we had a library where you could go and check out albums, and I would check out a lot of Who albums. 
And then, yeah, I think I found the kids are all right in a cutout bin at a video store and said, yeah, let's pick this up because it was really cheap. And I watched it quite a few times and really enjoyed it. Yeah, I agree with you. Documentary, big old question mark on that. It is something and it's something that I enjoy. And going back to it for this episode, I found that I enjoyed it just as much. I think actually the first time that I ever heard the who, well, it, to me, it's two memories actually is uh, seeing footage of them on Don Kirshner. Don Kirshner's rock concert and it, and it was a combination of like I think from the 70s and they showed pieces of substitute if I can remember and the other memory of the Who for me hearing them the first time was booting around in my dad's car and my uncle had an 8-track of the Who as well and hearing uh, Squeezebox Dad and Boris the Spider were the two songs that really perked up my ears when I was in high school the end of I mean early beginning of high school who were doing their farewell tour in the 80s in Maple Leaf Gardens, and uh, we went and saw them. That was the only time I'd seen them with Kenny Jones. That was the show that they released, I think, as a as a video special. It was on satellite. They streamed it worldwide. That one from Toronto, yeah. Yeah, I watched that a bunch of times. Bernie, now you're the wild card here because I don't think we've ever actually spoken about The Who before. Where do you sit on them? Were you a fan? And if so, or not, when was the first time you saw this film? Well, I'm going to live up to who my reputation on this podcast <laughs> as, the, uh, as the odd one out. <laughs> the first time I recall hearing The Who, sort of two memories, really. Initially, I remember when I used to stay with my grandparents on a Sunday morning, they would be making the big sort of Sunday roast dinner in the kitchen and they would have the radio on and it was sort of like, I say an oldies station, it would have been playing stuff from the 50s and 60s mainly. And I'm sure... I heard it must have been my generation because that song just seems to be ubiquitous. I don't really, it's always been there. I'm pretty sure I must have heard it there. The other occasion I remember is a friend of mine at school. No, it would have been about 11 or 12. And he was one of those guys with the really cool uncle who had the amazing record collection. And uh, this guy's uncle used to make him mixtapes. And I remember being very taken with a song called Boris the Spider, which I then found out was The Who. And another song, which I think was called Tattoo. Welcome to my life, Tattoo. I'm a man now, thanks to you. I expect I'll regret you, but the skin rock man won't get you. Yes. Yeah. From the Who sell out. Well, I'd, I'd have to take your word on that. <laughs> but I, I found out later down the line that that was the Who as well, and, and I did very much like those songs. As far as the film goes, uh, the first time I saw it was yesterday when I watched it for this very podcast oh, we are talking really? about here. Yes. Okay, so I'll be really, really, really interested to hear your thoughts as we go along as a newbie, because I'm pretty sure all the rest of us have seen this. Well, yeah, we have seen this a bunch of times. So a first time yeah. perspective because for the one or two of you out there who may not have seen this film it's less of a documentary and it's just more a curation if you will I think what you said at the start of the conversation that it's the best video mixtape ever I think that's a way more accurate description I, I think uh, as, as we've all alluded to you'd be very very hard pressed to call this a documentary because there's no narrative as such you don't really come away from it knowing <sighs> anything new or really gleaning any insights I thought 
thought personally. You may all well disagree with me. We'll see. But yeah, I I think calling it a documentary is a bit disingenuous. It's an easy catch-all phrase because how do you describe something that's not a narrative? Mm -hmm. Then yeah, it must be a documentary. I will come up with my thoughts to whether you don't come away learning anything about it because I definitely think that you do. My first watching of The Kids Are All Right would have been sometime the early to mid-80s. I've mentioned before a few times on the show about the long-lamented but beloved Valhalla cinema down here in Melbourne. And the Valhalla, they would either show films that were you know, maybe considered left of centre or they'd have cult films in double features. They used to show at least three or four times a year a double feature of The Kids Are Alright and the song remains the same. Oh, yeah. The Kids Are Alright was always on first, so I found that after the first couple of times I saw the song remains the same that I could leave. I like Zeppelin, but I never thought much of that as a film. I think it's a particularly poor concert film. So anyone who disagrees, bite me. I totally thought of Song Remains the Same at one point in The Kids Are All Right, and that's the whole record shooting scene. I was just like, right. that whole yep. thing, exactly. the way it begins, him in the house, coming down yep. with all the bases yep. and shooting the yep. records. This is so yep. self-indulgent. Yep. When's he going to turn into a wizard? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 yeah, I was going to say, Morris, what you mentioned about the double bill, the song remains the same, and the kids are all right. I think every major city in North America and Australia and England, when they had those retro cinemas or whatever, every weekend they'd have the midnight screenings. And the midnight screenings would be a combination of either the trifecta of films, which I would say would be either Rocky Horror, Song Remains the Same, or kids are all right because I had been to theaters in Toronto when they did midnight screenings where there would be song remains the same or Rocky or song remains the same enter the dragon and it was always those rock films the the spectacle because yeah. you could come in and sit in the back row and just get completely like lit and fire something up and it was just like that get overwhelmed the other one too I would say that would fall into this being local to you would be Akadaka ACDC's Let There Be Rock that was another one that would do the midnight rounds I'll tell you another one that would as well is Pink Floyd's The Wall and I'm not mad for the Floyd's music you know like hate their <laughs> lyrics you know that was ubiquitous for yeah, years totally. here. I, yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't think we've seen Let There Be Rock here since it was originally released. Really surprised that that wasn't sort of picked up as a midnight feature here, or at least on a rock and roll double bill over the years. Maybe the rights have slipped or something, but yeah, no, that hasn't been around here since it was a thing. A little side note to this is my Uncle Doug used to run a theatre in Aurelia, Ontario, up here in Canada, called the Geneva. And when they actually got a, a new sound system in there, my cousin Mark and I, they were screening, actually, a midnight screening of Let There Be Rock. And we went in in an afternoon, I remember, being a little kid and, and them actually testing out the THX with Let There Be Rock and that was actually when it first came out that was considered the first high fidelity rock and roll concert film I suppose all his friends have been on here because you know I'm only one of several I've told you about all the mad things he's done in life such as you know breaking up rooms driving his car into swimming pools driving his car into foyers well I'm not going to tell you about any of that you know I'm just here to tell you about 
the kids I know and love. Coming back to my early viewings of The Kids Are Alright, the first time I saw it, because my head was expecting to have a conventional sort of documentary and we open up with that segment from the Smothers Brothers show and then it moves into Shindig and I'm just sort of waiting and waiting, when's the narration going to kick in? When's there going to be a talking head that's going to explain to me about the early days of The Who? And then it just never happens and I'm just waiting and waiting and by the end of the film, I thought, well, wow, that was completely different to anything that I was expecting. And I've got to confess, the first time I watched it, it felt very, very dissettling. In doing up some reading and prep for this podcast, I found that the famous or infamous reviewer for the New York Times, Janet Maslin, had written that the film was willfully determined to be uninformative and counted its lack of chronology or non-identification of what the source of the film footage was. It basically counted those things against the film. And on paper, it sort of sounds like a fair enough assessment but just listening to Jeff Stein's commentary on the DVD he basically says that he wanted this film to be a celebration of all that The Who was he was a fanboy he'd gone and done a whole lot of photos of The Who in the early 70s we'll come in a couple of minutes as to how the film actually got to be made but he wanted this film to be a celebration about everything that he loved about The Who because there's a lot of things obviously missing we never have any reference to Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp we have no mention of the Mehababa. We have none of that sort of stuff. And that's not what Jeff Stein intended. He wanted this film to be about, here's my favorite rock band of all time. Here's what made them great. And we're going to go all over the place. At the end of it, you do come out with one sense of who they were. I mean, obviously there were things about, you know, Townsend and Moon were very, very troubled individuals and they fought a lot. We don't get that side, but there are other documentaries that do cover that sort of ground. And we can come back and see whether they work or not. But I do agree that if his intention was to show why they are a band to be celebrated. And I think the other thing is like he says in the commentary or maybe in the written notes that I'd read, by the time this film came out, a lot of people who were maybe not necessarily dying the wall Who fans only knew them for Tommy. And he said, well, he wanted to correct that by saying, well, they did a lot of other stuff, especially the pre-Tommy stuff. No one knew a quick one while right. he's away. No film had been made like this no film had been made as i said as a mixtape so i think it's successful in that regard as showing who the who was one thing i really like about this okay is the fact that it goes forward and then it goes back and then it goes forward and then it goes back and then it goes forward and then it shows you the present at that time and then it shows you them in their youth and then it shows you when they were coming up and then it shows you them where all four pistons were firing like full force who and I really love that. Just when you think, well, this is the Who at their pinnacle with Bob O'Reilly, but then it actually goes back and you're like, no, wait a minute. They were really great with Can't Explain as well. So you really can't say that there's a pinnacle moment for the Who. It proves the point that, like you're saying, for those that only knew them for a certain period, you know, thinking, well, this is as good as it's going to get. And then taking it back and say, well, no contrary, my friend, they were still just as good back in the early, I mean, like late 60s when they were starting. Back in the day, I read this biography on the band called Before I Get Old 
written by Dave Marsh, who I think was a journalist for Rolling Stone magazine. A terrific book. I went back and read that God knows how many times. And he makes a case. Now, you guys know that I'm a Beatles tragic, Beatles obsessive. But he makes a case, which I guess I'll 100% agree with, that the best debut single out of the holy trinity of the Beatles, the Stones and the Who was I Can't Explain. It's a better debut single than Come On by the Stones, which was a Chuck Berry cover and Love Me Do. So, you know, I Can't Explain was excitement just running out of the gate. And that goes along with what you're saying there, Tim. Right, absolutely. Probably a lot of people, they don't necessarily give enough credit to those pre-Tommy days. I know that it's certainly like a thing with the Beatles, people sort of tend to forget everything pre-Rubber Soul and revolver but for the who certainly like with songs pictures of lily and substitute and yes the ubiquitous my generation where they were just rocking it straight out of the gate and showed what a fantastic songwriter pete townsend was but also what a bunch of personalities that the who was as a band but not even that i mean holy shit you know you got the isle of light and you got woodstock which townsend hated well the whole band hated i think i mean you were the great star of Woodstock. Woodstock itself was one of the biggest pop events in world terms mm. because of the film. Just as a matter of interest, what do you think it changed? Well, it changed me. I hated it. Did you say, Mike, that you ever got a chance to see The Who in the intervening years in any formation? No, no. I remember when they were doing their, uh, how many farewell concerts did they do? Quite a few, it felt like. Three or four of them, (laughs) and they're still at it. (laughs) Yeah, kind of like the Rolling Stones, speaking of. more. (laughs) But I wish they had the class that Led Zeppelin had and just kind of quit after Keith Moon was gone. But they just kept milking that cash cow and... And I never had the chance to see them. I'm sure that they would have been a great act to see, but I was so glad to see that concert that you sent along, Morris. That was fantastic. That was the Kilburn show. We'll get to that a little bit later on because it's very, very important with regards to the making of the film. Yeah, I got to see them just the once in London in 1996. There was this series of shows that they did every year called the Prince's Charity Trust Concert. That was in Hyde Park. And The Who did Quadrophenia from start to finish and that was like a real theater piece because they had aid edmondson bond 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 but Gary Glitter before his life blew up. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, big oops. Phil Daniels from the film. Stephen Fry was in it. At all star cast. Fortunately, I got to see the band while they still had Entwistle. They had Zach Starkey. And for my money, he's been really the only Keith Moon-like drummer over the course of the post-Moon existence. Right. I've always liked Face Dancers as an album, the first album that they did with Kenny Jones. But it's more like a really great Pete Townsend solo album that just happened to feature right. the members of the Who. You brought up Quadrophenia. Watching this again, the kids are all right. And even in the past viewings, I see a real parallel to this in Quadrophenia. When Townsend started with the Who, they were basically trying to make a statement about my generation, their generation, about what it was to be young and disgruntled. And then there was all this unity that came with that. And that's with the mods, just like Quadrophenia. But then as Quadrophenia goes on, as Jimmy goes on and he sharpens up and things don't turn out the way he expects, there's all this disillusionment. And I think that with The Kids Are All Right, Townsend actually expresses disillusionment 
in this film because he's talking about nobody recognizes quality and nobody gives a shit and everything you thought about when we were younger it was about aggression and about getting your yayas out and then as he gets older he's just like I'm just doing my job you know everybody's just a bunch of geezers and I really don't give a shit about the audience even the lyrics I mean long live rock be it dead or alive you know, and even Daltrey is talking about how rock doesn't stand up. Rock and roll's got no future, it don't matter. And as they get older, it seems to me that they just get more, I don't know if you want to call it wiser or jaded, but it's not the same as it was from when they started. And I think that that's all really prevalent. And to me, that's the whole main guise of Quadrophenia. It's all that kind of raw angst of youth dissolving away into kind of a weird and in reality. I guess this comes back to the criticism that Bernie made earlier on about there's a lot of detail that you don't know. So by the time we see Townsend and Daltrey saying through the lens of their experience that rock and roll doesn't have a future, there's nothing to it. But they've also sort of been through a whole lot of shit with Keith Moon and his antics. And he he was a desperately unhappy man. But there was also all the angst that they'd had with their managers, Chris Stamp and Kit Lambert. And just as an aside, last night, I discovered that I had a copy of a documentary that was devoted to Lambert and Stamp. So I basically told the whole Who story again, but with them as the central focus. And that brings like a completely different perspective to another documentary that I have called Amazing Journey, The Story of the Who, which both of those films are talking heads type documentaries going in chronological order and fans talking about their impression of the Who and people saying, well, this is what we experience. But once again, coming to the point, where Townsend and Daltrey expressed dissatisfaction, even with John Entwistle. We became rich a lot later than I expected. (laughs) Now I'm too old to enjoy my money. Yeah, exactly. I was just about to say that. You took the words right out of my mouth. So, yeah, it's as much about them, yeah, sure, getting older and they don't have the fire burning in the belly of their youth, but it's also fuck Keith's gone and run over his chauffeur and oh shit Keith's gone and taken some horse tranquilizers and oh we're getting too old for this shit it's not just about what's going on around them in the wider world how rock and roll music has changed and certainly it had changed they thought it had changed with the punk movement being a thing in 1977 but what Townsend didn't realise until he sort of met half the Sex Pistols in a nightclub in Soho was that they were huge fans of The Who and he went and said ah fuck I'm disappointed in you it's them getting older but it's also the lens of everything that they had been through you make me want to And 
you know, I, I don't know if it was Mark Twain or Will Rogers who said, you know, the two worst things in life are not getting what you want and getting what you want. One thing that sort of came up, I think, in the commentary, and I'm, I know that all you guys listened to the commentary on the, the DVD, which was excellent Jeff Stein telling all these stories, but remember, there's one particular incident that sort of described to a T what Townsend was all about, I think. And remember, Tim, that Alan Arkush actually told us about this story when we spoke about to the him. cop. Yeah, about the cop. Alan Arkush was working as an usher and as a Becker House guy in the Fillmore East. And one of the earliest concerts that Jeff Stein went to see The Who of was at the Fillmore East the night that there was a fire. Townsend always got into this intensity zone where no one could get on stage without him getting extremely violent. This happened several times. When I'm on the stage, I'm not in control of myself at all. I don't even know who I am. You know, I'm not this rational person that can sit here now and talk to you. Policemen came on when the bloody building at the Fillmore in New York was burning down. And I kicked him in the balls and sent him off. He even says in the film, he says, I almost killed Abby Hoffman when I hit him with my guitar. <laughs> that was at Woodstock, wasn't Woodstock, it? Woodstock, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Watching this was extremely bizarre yet exciting for Jeff Stein and he'd taken a lot of photos of the band over those couple of years, the first few times that he got to see The Who play in New York. He approached the band in, I think, 75. Oh yeah, would have been like about the time where Tommy was being premiered in the US and said, look, I'm a stills photographer. What do you think of my photos? And Townsend loved them. And so when Stein proposed making a documentary, making a film about The Who, and at first The Who weren't so sure, but Bill Kerbishley, the newly appointed manager said no I think that this actually needs to be done and there's a lot of talk in the commentary and in a ton of notes that I've read there's a bunch of essays online I think you sent me a really good one Mike about how Jeff sort of went scrounging around for footage all over the world and just pretty much like wake and fright some of it was found in dumpsters and I'm just wondering was that a common thing in film history film footage being left in dumpsters being tossed out in all the research that you've done for films that you've discussed on the projection booth were there many others besides wake and fright that you'd heard about film footage that had been left for dead yeah, I mean, that's how Bruce Connor, Craig Baldwin, so many found footage filmmakers actually got their stuff was by dumpster diving and going to universities and other places where they're just like, we don't have enough room, so we're going to pitch this. That's not even talking about people who were possibly able to dumpster dive or rescue things from you know, MGM, Warners, Paramount, any of the big studios. And even just, I think it was about a year or so ago, interviewing the CEO of uh, Penthouse and she and uh, filmmaker Alex Tuschinski were looking into where the actual footage for Tinto Brass's Caligula was and it's sitting in a warehouse and the contract is up and they're getting ready to pitch stuff like the next week and yeah. here they're like wait 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 no we need that so how many stories are there that we don't know about thousands where 
this happens and people just are like, I don't have any room anymore. I'm going to pitch this stuff. There's that famous story about Metropolis where they found the additional footage of that down in Brazil somewhere. I think oh, yeah. It was a, yeah, it's just it's crazy where they find things. It's, you never you never imagined in a million years. I think actually even a film that we covered a few years ago on the show, Catch My Soul. Right. Some guy actually did store his. That wasn't in a dumpster. There was, I think, one print left on some guy's disused bus which he kept on his farm property or something like that and maybe another couple of copies of it were kept on umatic videotape but that really took a whole lot of detective work and my lord the planet just isn't big enough to store every film you know, important or not Tommy can you hear me can you feel me near you Tommy can you see me can I help to cheer you I know that we've not been saying a hell of a lot much to this point about the footage that we actually do see in the film, but I think there's a stuff around the film that's really interesting. In a way, that's kind of the strength and the weakness of the film. It's apparent that you, Mike and Tim, are all obviously big Who fans, and you know the history, and you know the minutiae. Bernie, I don't. I don't know the minutiae, so even when when Morris is dropping some of these names, I'm just like, I have no idea who that is. Like, I know... I know some of the urban legends. So like okay. when they right. show up and Steve Martin is like, oh, blah, 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 drive your car into a pool. I'm like, I think uh, that that was something Keith Moon used to do. TV sets are loose and free because we know you rock stars do like to throw television sets into the swimming pool. Let me help you with that, Keith. Run out the window. You take the final cross, buddy. This documentary tells you fuck all so like it does not do that complete Beatles job of here we are I'm going to take you by the hand and lead you down this path and tell you who all these important people are it's just like concert footage talking head concert footage and when I say talking head it's fucking Pete Townsend who just seems to love the sound of his own voice and then him being cut against himself after a while it's like would you get off the stage and let the musicians play please the thing I'm actually angling at is that this film works if you are a fan of the who oh yeah you know obviously you guys enjoyed it and i wouldn't say that i hate the who i'm fairly ambivalent towards them and subsequently i'd found this pretty hard going but that's just because i'm not a fan of the band so it is a difficult film to talk about in that respect for me because i just don't really have a connection with it sorry sort of two quick questions i can throw out to you first of all from what you're saying i assume this is the first one of the first films of this type where it is literally just almost a video mixtape. I'm wondering if it might be the only one that I sort of know of. All right, that's interesting because maybe it has uh, the reputation that it does partly because of that. The song remains the same is, is pretty mixy. Similar-ish, too. yeah. No, well, the song remains the same is a concert film with a few indulgent fantasy sequences. Right, right. Isn't this essentially a concert film? It's just no. told from different concerts. I can see your point. <laughs> no, well, <laughs> and, well that, sorry, I'm going to cut you off again here, Morris, before you can defend it or answer it but the other thing i was curious as to whether i'm sure you guys know but did jeff stein shoot footage especially for this yes or did he take it from other sources both all right look i was going to come to this a bit later on but one thing that i learned in prep for this podcast was exactly how much of the footage was his okay so the famous story the performances of baba o'reilly which is fairly early on in the film and the closing moments of the film which was won't get 
fooled again were definitely filmed by Jeff Stein. Originally, he'd set up for them to play a concert at a cinema in an area called Kilburn because The Who hadn't played in about a year or something like that. And he knew that there'd been no footage that he could find of those two songs. Now, he was resigned to the fact that he wasn't going to get anything from Quadrophenia because pretty much Pete Tans had put the kibosh. He didn't want anything filmed during that concert tour. So to my regret, there's nothing from Quadrophenia in that film. But Jeff saw there's no way here you can have an account of the story of The Who without having those two songs or something from Who's Next because they're so important in their canon. So he convinced them, right, do this one concert. We'll do it in a cinema or we'll do it in a small venue and you can do your thing. So he'd filmed this whole concert in Kilburn, which actually didn't see the whole thing until maybe about 10 years ago or 15 years ago or so. I don't think anyone was ever really that happy with it. And you know, Jeff Stein had said to the band at the end of it, look, I think that that was actually a little bit lackluster. I mean, the fact that this young guy in his early 20s who'd never made a movie before was telling one of the big dinosaur rock bands of the world that he didn't think that they were up to scratch. And they weren't because they hadn't actually played in over a year. And Keith Moon was desperately unhappy and was taking a whole lot more drugs and seeking a whole lot more attention that his drumming was just not up to par and the band were a little bit lackluster. So he basically said, you guys need to do this again. So then they went into Shepparton Film Studios, which they owned and did another concert, this time in front of a bunch of you know hand-chosen performers and friends. So there was the Sex Pistols were there and the members of the Pretenders were there. And so they went and did this other nine song set. And at the end of it, Jeff goes into their dressing room and the band was spent. And he says to them, look guys, uh, I don't think we have the definitive take won't get fooled again you need to do it again and Tanzin nearly punched him out they went on did it again and I still don't think it's necessarily the definitive take of won't get fooled again but we don't have any video footage from the who's next era it would have to do but it's still very very exciting but the other bits which Jeff had gone and filmed specifically for this film and I didn't know that until sort of doing the research for this was the moments with Keith Moon and Ringo Pete said what do you think about Ringo well, you know, we have our moments. And when we get together, there are certain times that you just, something happens. And I really don't know what it is. But there's that magic It's there. probably we're drunk. It could be what? That. Not drunk, teeny boppers. I know. I mean, absolutely not, you Donnie and Marie Pans. had a lot of medicine. <laughs> absolutely. You know, yeah. just a lot of medicine. We're getting on. We're getting you know, on now. Getting we need old. our medicine. So. See, you know, see, you just see the age of this suit which was filmed in Keith's house in California. He'd moved over there. The moment that you were talking about before with John Entwistle on his property shooting the records because basically Jeff had thought, well, we hear a lot from Tanzan and we're seeing the wackiness of Keith Moon and we're getting a little bit out of Roger, but we don't really have anything from the quiet one, from the ox. He goes over to his property to film and I guess, yes, it is his little Led Zeppelin-like fantasy moment, but the story that made me laugh, I don't know whether it's true or not. It was just them having a bit of a joke. Jeff goes and asks him, 
oh, do you feel right about shooting all those gold records of yourself? And he said, oh, no, 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 don't worry. Those are Roger's gold records, Roger's <laughs> solo album. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's just me, but I always saw a parallel between Zeppelin and The Who. Both of their guitar players were just up their own arse. Their singer basically was trying to keep the even keel. Their drummers were maniacs. And their bass players were basically trying to stay out of the picture. I think that John Paul Jones would have tried to be more in the picture if he would have been a lad. He was the quiet one like the Ox, I guess. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. Certainly in that regard. The one real ouch moment for me watching the film is when they were talking about how the money gets divided. Have you all of you made enough money to stop work this afternoon tonight? Yes, I have. You have. You mean you've made more money than they have? Well, I write. Are you started on that? No, I write the songs. Yes. So if you write songs, you get a bit on the side. You see, the thing is, as songwriter, I do have something. You know. I'm going for you. Got going, going. And when Tom's like, oh, I write all the was songs. painful, wasn't it? Yeah. I write all the songs. So they all scoot over across. I love that moment. But at the same time, I was just cringing. Yeah, that was on the, the Russell Harty show. That, that, which is that. one of the few real threads that ties this whole thing together, I would think. Right. Speaking of threads, I love the part where Keith goes over and rips Pete's shirt and Pete goes over and rips Keith's shirt. You know, they're digging at each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Once again, coming back to this Lambert and Stamp film, they have more footage from that particular TV appearance and Moon was not only off his chum with Townsend, but you see him actually beating the stuffing out of Roger Daltrey, all for laughs of course, because Daltrey could have just given one solid punch and knocked him into tomorrow. I know that it is probably a fair enough criticism that says that you don't come away from this film knowing much about The Who's history, and that is true, but once again, I come back to what Jeff Stein said, that this is supposed to be a celebration about why he loved them. I would say as well, Morris, that that isn't necessarily a criticism. That's not what this film is for, and that's absolutely fine, because if we were talking about this in terms of it being a documentary, which it kind of isn't, maybe you could see that as a failing, but that's not what this film is designed to do, so... No. In that respect, it's, it's fine. This film Amazing Journey, which I think is probably like a Who production, because I'm pretty sure Bill Kerbishley there manages one of the executive producers on it. So it's officially sanctioned. But there's a whole lot of the talking head thing. We did this and then we did that. And... Yeah, sure, it's a documentary in the traditional sense. I mean, look, I I enjoy it, but you don't get the real sense of what made them exciting from that film. And one of my favourite moments in The Kids Are Alright is their appearance on the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. Now, ladies and gentlemen, dig the who. The story about that is because The Who, and probably for that matter, I imagine Jethro Tull and every other band that appeared on that blew the Rolling Stones out of the water that Mick Jagger said, no, we're not putting this out. And you watch The Who doing their song, A Quick One While He's Away, which was their first sort of opera, as Pete liked to put it. But, you know, just basically a bunch of songs strung together 
telling a story. I love when Pete pitches the drum. They have that footage on YouTube and someone who had a fair bit of time up his sleeve, but I'm grateful for it, goes and makes a note as to all the little things that you just blink and you miss it. So there's a moment where like Townsend's doing his windmill guitar thing because he does it so violently he accidentally knocks the overhead microphone over Keith's drum kit which he knocks it right into Keith's head but Keith just keeps playing he's just like the professional he is there's another moment late in the video where Pete's microphone is starting to sag and that huge proboscis of his puts it back into place because he, <laughs> he can't use his hand just watch it again you'll see that and there's like about five or six little tidbits in that film clip alone they just keep going there's no stopping and the song is just so exciting they're playing with all this abandon I think if someone was to say to me why is this a band that you love what makes them so exciting I think that's the footage that I'd show them that one song and there's lots of moments in the film there's a bit from I think the Isle of Wight festival where they're that's my favourite or maybe it's a Covent Garden footage where they're playing Young Man Blues where the young man Ain't got nothing in the world these days And you just get this one camera from the wing because that's all they had. Right. I always thought that Young Man Blues, the version that we always knew from Live at Leeds, was probably one of the most exciting performances that they ever did. It's just, they're frantic. Those are the two bits of footage which I'd say to someone, this is why I love this band. I don't know if this is going to make any sense, but the way I see The Who and the way I see The Kids Are Right, it kind of reminds me of Apocalypse Now where these guys, they start on a mission and they're all clean-cut at the beginning. And some of them are wacky at the beginning and some of them are not, and they will eventually become wacky. But they go down this river and they're on this mission and initially, you know, they're all into it wholehearted. And then when you see them get into these firefights, they're all in. By the end, you see the remnants of them and you see they're still unhinged and they're still a band of brothers and they're still tied together by the mission, but it's completely off the rails. That's just how I see the kids are all right. And and that's how I've always seen the who. Isn't that the the 60s in general? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, there were very few acts which sort of survived intact out of the 60s, certainly not into the 80s. A lot of bands certainly had their best days behind them and this was certainly a last gasp. Right. When you say last gasp, this is another thing too that always got me. I remember being in high school when Eminence Front came out. And thinking, holy shit, man, if, if there wasn't a theme song for the 80s, the cocaine era, Eminence Front was like, bang, like, that was it. That summed up, like, Miami Vice and, like, everything, man. But the story was really over. Oh, yeah. It, for them, it was a put-on. No moon. <laughs> no moon, no who. I think Face Stances is a great album. It's hard, the one that Eminence Front came off. For me, not really a great album, but either one sounds like just a Townsend solo album. And Townsend had made some great solo albums, but he used that opportunity to do something 
very unhoo-like. Even the new Roger and Pete album that came out last year just sounds to me like a pretty good Pete Townsend solo album. Right. I think it might have been you, Tim, that said that Pete was often talking out of his own ass. One thing that I sort of found evidence of in the film was something that Dave Marsh had spoken about in that Before I Get Old biography. And Pete just loved, as you say, to talk to journalists and but every time that he would speak to someone, he was always contradicting something that he'd said to mm-hmm. another journalist. And we're not even talking like evolving over the years and something that I believe at 33 is not what I believe at 23. You can understand that. But sometimes he'd be saying something that was maybe in contradiction to what he'd just spoken about to a different journalist. Yeah, the day 2.30 before. to 3.30. Right, right, right. right. So in the film, Tanzan, he went very, very philosophical. He, he loved to sort of consider himself high art in the Lambert and Stamp documentary is because Kit Lambert was introducing Pete to culture and introducing him to the opera and introducing him to orchestral music. So Townsend sort of thought, oh, okay, well, this is another area that I want to go in. And there's no problem with that. But Townsend, as well as sort of with his interest in the Mehrbaba, Baba, so he sort of thought, this is not just a rock and roll band. There's this example in the film of him contradicting himself. And I could guess that there's no more than about a few months to a year tops between when he made these two statements. So there's this moment where he's on, uh, I can't remember which TV show it is, but it's black and white footage. And there's this very polite audience of teenage kids None of them are screaming, and one of them is asking Pete, saying, Well, Pete, you've often gone and said that you think that a lot of pop music is just rubbish. And he says, Oh, well, you know, this band and pop music, it has no quality. It's just basic shepherd's bush enjoyment. And I've always thought that that was really disingenuous. And then a few minutes later, you see him, like, in the tour bus when they're on their first tour of the States, and he's talking to the camera. And and this is pre-Tommy, so pre-opera, pre-getting all pretentious about it and he says pop music is crucial as art he's gone from saying you know pop music is just rubbish basic shepherd's bush enjoyment to saying no it's the highest of art but he couldn't have foreseen that in the future that we were going to be able to watch this sort of stuff over and over again well that's the thing when you take the piss with people that you don't consider you know posterity right no one would know that in 1967 that all this stuff would be for posterity it's on television once and then it's gone right forever given that some of this stuff is found in dumpsters maybe he wouldn't have been completely wrong about that (laughs) but so once again i don't think necessarily that this film isn't telling a story because i think it's very deliberate that one of these clips is shortly after the other one i know i'm rambling on but this will be the last thing before i let you guys just take over but there's this one moment in the film where i think that jeff stein has very cleverly edited this there was an appearance that they did on the german show called beat club and And there's that moment in the film where you see the German presenter talking to Pete about the philosophy of Tommy and he's (laughs) getting into really deep philosophy and the camera's on Townsend's face. And at the end of it, he says, uh, indicating that he doesn't understand what the fuck that this presenter (laughs) has gone and spoken about. Uh, The uh, image in the mirror, the uh, pinball and uh, the sensibility in general see me, feel me, touch me, heal me, uh, which reflect in a certain sense uh, the phenomenon uh, of youth subculture. There is narcissism, there is a kind of new sensibility, there's uh, a strong tendency for playing up things and, and no more 
putting it into aggressive forms of uh, a counteraction. Uh. If you get to see the full footage where Tanzin's talking about Tommy in general, and he gives as good as he gets, and he's talking about a whole lot of stuff that I doubt that the presenter knew what Townsend was talking about. And he never once told the story of Tommy to an interviewer at the time. He never once told that story and told the same story to two different interviewers because truth be known who knows what the story of tommy is about you made a really good point of it in the projection booth mike while you were talking about tommy as a film that this is ken russell's interpretation of what tommy was about and it wasn't necessarily townsend's interpretation uh-huh. i think what's interesting with townsend and i mean like for most musicians you get caught in the polarity and it's like i kind of said earlier you know the, the two worst things in life are not getting what you want and getting what you want I think he wanted the recognition of the audience. He wanted the accolades. He wanted to be that vital element to young people. But at the same time, he didn't want any of it. He wanted it the way he wanted it. You know, when you put stuff out there, the way people take it is the way people take it. And you have to just, you know, be satisfied with that. And a lot of people, not just Townsend, but I think a lot of people have that difficulty riding kind of the polarity between pursuing something, but then finding out, you know, when they get it, it's not exactly the way that they exactly wanted it. Coming back to what we're talking about, about whether there's been another film quite like this. And sort of something occurred to me about how the kids are all right and it's more conventional counterpart Amazing Journey go. The other comparison that I can sort of think about, and both films were made by the same director, was The Great Rock and Roll Swindle and The Filth and the Fury. Uh, <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. The great, the great Rock and Roll Swindle is chaotic and The Filth and the Fury is a more conventional retelling or, as I think it was said, you know, The Rock and Roll Swindle was told from uh, Malcolm McLaren's perspective and all chaotic. And The Filth and the Fury was John Lydon's side of the story. I certainly found that a more enjoyable, straight-out telling. I wanted to know what the Sex Pistols story was, but the great rock and roll swindle shows you who the Sex Pistols were. And I think that is, once again, coming to this whole notion of what this film is. Amazing Journey tells you... The kids are all right, shows you. It's almost like sports, right? If you think about it, when there's sporting events and then you get like the ESPN 30 for 30, that kind of you know steps aside and says, okay, like you're saying, it shows you what happened. And then you get the sidelines with the commentary, right? You know, explaining, you know, like the relevance of things, a moment. The Great Rock and Roll Swindle is a Sex Pistols film, whereas uh, The Filth and the Fury is a film about the Sex Pistols. Mm. And you could say uh-huh. the same about this. This is a Who film, whereas the other documentary you're referring to is a film about the Who. Right. This is almost like the equivalent of an LP designed to be taken in that way as opposed to something that you would sit down and watch and learn things from you know it's something to be enjoyed as opposed to uh i don't know is that making sense yeah no no completely. I, so. I mean i'm not sure whether jeff would approve of this but the kids are all right is that sort of film that you can have on in the background i mean I, i've never watched yeah. it that way i've always watched it start to finish how enthralled i am with the subject matter and, and the presentation but it feasibly is the sort of film that you could just have on in the background and watch this clip and watch that clip but 
I just love that it, it gives you this impression. It's not the story of The Who, but you come away with your impression of The Who because it is The Who rather than about The Who. What this film made me think of is when I was maybe like 14, 13, 14, 15, started going to record fairs. Quite often you would have people there who'd have a table of sort of, I, I guess, essentially bootleg videos, but a lot of them were just compilations where they had got some concert footage from somewhere and then an appearance on a TV show and so on and then literally just filled like uh, you know a two hour video cassette with it mm. and you were a fan of that band you see that tape with their name on it you think shit that's like two hours of stuff to do with that band that I really like this is kind of like the legit version of that I guess some of those tapes absolutely. were some of the best things in your collection you absolutely. Oh, absolutely absolutely yeah, yeah yeah because back in the day it wasn't like now when you can get everything at any time I mean I, I know what you're talking about Burn what you yeah. could you know I remember like you know collecting early misfit stuff and getting early footage of the misfits or anything or early punk stuff and just when getting the VHS it didn't matter the quality or it didn't matter whether it was, no, it was five it was minutes, five minutes or 20 it. minutes yeah, yeah just seeing yeah. it yeah just seeing it was like wow you know like, absolutely yeah. it's like I say this is like a, a polished legit version of that for the who fans out there well it was maybe a precursor maybe this inspired people to actually sort of go out and yeah 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 absolutely yeah Jeff was not a director at the time I mean he went on to become a director and did a lot of video clips in the 80s and TV shows after that I think but he was a fanboy essentially and mm-hmm. I don't think he knew how to put a film together so the, oh okay well yeah let's go search this footage hey yeah you need to see this yeah you need to see that in the, the interview that he says in the commentaries is I just wish I could have had a, a 20 hour film my heart of hearts I want to believe that this is curated in a very special sort of way maybe it's not it is just a fanboy's assembling a footage hey we've got to include this we've got to include that as you think about it though in a way this is a better way to present something because when you're providing people with information about a band it's always up to interpretation from whoever's watching it but when you're not providing any narrative in any way whatsoever and you're just providing the raw element the raw source Everybody takes away from it whatever they want to take away from it. I just want to be a little Australian for a minute here. This is like almost like Vegemite, where it's like it's either for you or it's not. It's as pure as it gets. It's the raw source for the who. And when you go in, you get it, and you're either saying, yes, I get this, it suits me, or it doesn't. There's no interpreting this. thought occurred to me that this is the antithesis of another film that we spoke about on the show. Remember that documentary that we discussed about the replacement? and no involvement from the band and it was just a whole bunch of fanboys no music footage no concert footage and it was just talk nothing else and not even talk from the major players and this is well there's it's all archival talks there's no new talk so it's all just footage and performance it's the antithesis of that and i'll take this any day the other thing this is comfort food for me this is one of my comfort films everyone's got that the who is a band uh, maybe only second to the Beatles. so this is really comfort food and i still like to think that i could be somewhat objective about it but it's the greatest rock film for me ever so maybe well, well what's really great about this too is like i remember seeing the footage that he showed for Bob O'Reilly before I even seen the kids are all right. And it's funny because for people, younger people that have never had any experience with the Who, they can see Bob O'Reilly and go, oh shit, man, this is great. And you say, well, if you think this is great, this is only part of a bigger picture, like boom. And then you lay the kids are all right on them and then that's it. 
any final thoughts go around the table and a film that you'd recommend and if so who would you recommend it for if you like the who you will enjoy this film if you are ambivalent or you don't particularly like the who uh, you won't so if you're a fan watch it if you're not don't you're basically saying that you came away from this thinking I don't get the fuss I wouldn't watch this again like I said earlier it's a difficult film to talk about because it really does your enjoyment of this is predicated on whether you like the who or not it's difficult to be objective about it as a film in itself because it is pretty much just a bunch of footage edited together there's no narrative so it's a perfectly well made nicely put together film with lots of footage of the who that if you're a who fan you will enjoy if you don't like the who you'll probably be a bit bored like i was i would have to highly recommend this film to anybody who's big fans of like nickelback or lincoln park or <laughs> any of these bands they just think man this is a I did that brow rock because it, it's just like, you guys, I know what you think it all is, but tread this on for size. And just sp- sit back and just watch their forehead go out the back of their head. Like Bernie said, you know, you're either a fan of the Who or you're not. But to me, this is a definitive, like I said earlier, it's like Vegemite. It's like, you know, you get a bite of this and you're either going to say yes or no fucking way. But you still have to get that initial taste. And this is more than a taste, man. Like, this is straight down your gullet and then some. And I think that's the best way. Like, the Who have always been a shotgun blast. And that's not just saying for people who like the Who or don't like the Who. That's just the way that they always operated. It was either all or nothing with the Who. Who XP version, you know, like 5.1. For people that have had the milder taste of what they've misconstrued to be, quote-unquote, rock. This is going to kind of put them in a place that they never expected to be. Yeah, I would say, um, yeah, watch this or watch The Song Remains the Same and then ask yourself if anyone remembers laughter. (laughs) (laughs) Only if there's a bustle in your hedgerow. (laughs) Right. And you got to head into Tommy Smothers. You guys are really too much. And I want to introduce you to the, the guys individually in The Who because you never get to know their names. You know them as The Who. Everybody says Who, and you say, you know. What's your, so what's your name? Pete. Pete. And, Townsend, Pete, yeah. Pete, and where are you from, Pete? London. From London? Yeah. London where? London, England. <laughs> hey, where'd you learn to play, you know, that's a wild style of uh, playing. Where'd you learn to play the guitar like that? That was bowling. Bowling. <laughs> bowling. Yeah, I could tell. Now we move right along. Yeah. Uh, right over here. Right over here, and you're... Um, John. You're John? John. And you're, and you're from London, sir. From London, too? Yeah. And uh, you must be uh, Roger. I must be. Uh, why are you? Yeah. You're Roger? Roger. And where are you from? Uh, Oz. Roger. <laughs> Here's Roger from Oz. <laughs> and over here, the guy plays the sloppy drums. <laughs> Follow the yellow brick road. What's Indeed. your name? Keith. Keith? My friends call me Keith. You can call me John. He's like, all right, now you guys just knock it off. You know? Okay, that's enough. <laughs> and then and they all actually listen to him. I mean, that's just great. I was going to say, he deals with them a lot better than Russell Harty deals with them. Like, uh, so. <laughs> oh, that's <yeah>. for sure. <laughs> that's yeah. 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 To open up the movie with that footage, and I love with the guitar smash bringing up the titles, 
it just really sets the tone for everything and that that's the performance where Pete always sure. claims that he lost part of his hearing with the, all of that gunpowder. Yeah. I was going to say that that was the definitive explosion right there, the one when they put way too much in the drum kit. I always thought it was another show, but then I, I, I thought, wait, no, I thought it was the Smothers Brothers. I think that that introductory film clip of them performing My Generation on the Smothers Brothers show, it is a perfect way to start that film because it gives you the two elements that The Who as a group of personalities. We're not necessarily talking about all of the music or no. all of the deep themes that Townsend went on to do when he got all serious, but that three minutes gives you the humor of the who and the ferociousness of the who. They were both. That's kind of like what I was saying about the Apocalypse Now reference, right? Where, you know, like when I see that at the beginning, it's almost like when Martin Sheen's talking about everybody on the boat. And I love the bit, I have to say, where Tommy Smothers, he's about to go to Roger and he's like, no, not you. And he goes over to the head whistle. You know, and then he comes back and he's like, yeah, Roger from Oz. This is great. We'd realized the end of our tether. We'd reached it. We'd come upon the point when the... <laughs> Nosebleeds and all that. You know, no good. Can't go on doing it. It's no good. Uh, I think that pretty much covers all that we can say about the kids are all right. I had tried to search out Jeff Stein to uh, join us and talk about the film, but he has no social media presence. I mean, but to be fair, he's gone and said so much in the couple of articles that I've gone and read and commentary of, of the DVD. So. I'm struggling to think much else that we could have asked him, but he provided so much information. Even if we were to get Jeff on the show, he can't explain. Uh, oh, oh, boom. Oh. Oh, boom ching. <laughs> I'm amazed that you didn't come up with a whole lot more of those during the show, Timmy. So let's talk about next month. Next month, I've gone and lined up an interview with a film director. We're back to doing the director interview thing. I'm very, very excited. And I have to thank you, Bernie, for this. So a couple of months ago, we were having a conversation, just having a chit-chat you know, before we'd started recording again. And I was asking you, what recommendations music-wise have you got for me? And you mentioned a fellow called Charlie Maguire, who I had never heard of. And you said, give him a listen. You're absolutely going to love him. And I did, and you were 100% right. It happens occasionally, yeah, Morris. <laughs> like a broken clock, he's right at least twice a day. There we go. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so Charlie McGuire was, I don't know how to describe him. His music was, I don't know if you want to call it, it's not rockabilly revival or anything like that, but it's, I don't know, we'll, we'll, I'm going to have a month to think about he's it. He's kind of a mixture. There's rockabilly elements. There's a little bit of a garage rock element. There's a twangy blues element. There's a... The uh, a kind of, yeah, yeah, a sort of almost exotica type element as well. Right. And some of his stuff gets into almost like a kind of post-punky, sort of almost Joy Division-y type element as well, you know? He's a blender drink. Yes, yeah. very much. But it works. When you recommended that I listen to his music, and I was looking online and found out that there was a documentary about him called Tomorrow's Gone. I sought out the director of the film called Boaz Goldberg. Actually, before I even sought him out, I asked our friend Yaniv Edelstein, Mike, who uh, we spoke oh, nice. with recently on the Big Dig episode of the Projection Booth. I said, hey, do you know Boaz? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I've met him a couple of times at film festivals and the like. Yeah, nice guy. So I thought, all right, well, I'll approach 
Boas and just seems really, really super lovely. And we've had a few typed conversations till now. I said, look, you know, we do this podcast. Would you like to come on and talk about your film? We'd love to watch it and love to talk with you about it. And he was only too happy to. Looking forward to uh, watching that and talking with Boas about Charlie McGuire. And certainly I'd recommend any of you listeners out there, if you're not familiar with his music, go out and have a listen to the music. It's there. It's online. Order yourself a copy of the record. Tomorrow's Gone, double album. Really, really fantastic. It was only available on records. I ordered that and it's absolutely beautiful package put together. One of the best accompanying booklets I've ever seen in a record. Great photos, wonderful history there. It's on the uh, Numero Group label, isn't it? And they um, they do amazing reissues of... Uh, they really sort of dig deep and find interesting stuff and they just do a wonderful job with, you know, research, packaging, design, tip-top stuff. The 21st century equivalent of Rhino Records, maybe. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. They're a bit more boutique, perhaps, than Rhino, but uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, next month, that's our film, Tomorrow's Gone, documentary about Charlie McGuire, and we'll be speaking with its director, Boaz Goldberg. So immensely looking forward to that. I want to put out something for a minute, too. For see here, listeners, we're always open to any recommendations, any films coming up, anything that you know that might not be on our radar, anything that you think should be. Please, by all means, we're always available and we're always open to uh, suggestions. And we are you and you are us. and We're all together. All I want to say about that. I want to remind folks out there that we are now part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. They exist to basically promote podcasts which are music related. So at the time of recording this, there's about 35 podcasts in their arsenal. And I wholeheartedly recommend that you go to pantheon.com or rockandrollarchaeology.com. There's a lot of amazing podcasts out there. They like to describe themselves as the MTV of the podcast world but i presume that means mtv when they were still yeah music related (laughs) i was was gonna say mtv about like 25 30 years ago hopefully (laughs) exactly (laughs) love that album has been uh, on pantheon since october last year and now finally see here as part of that network and it's just really really an honor and very very exciting they have all sorts of people there there's back pages podcast hosted by barney hoskins and anyone who knows of barney's great work as a writer will really really enjoy this the goldmine podcast there's just so much stuff they're talking about the history of music speaking with authors speaking with musicians if you want to be part of our facebook community so you can make recommendations to us or just talk about a great music related film that you've recently seen we're facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast you can download us from all the usual platforms stitcher itunes spotify or i've just recently gone and created a new website for us at seeherepodcast.blogspot.com so you can go back through the archives all the way back to whatever it is six and a half years ago when we first started we're still here doing this i know that we had a few months here this year where we went on hold for a little bit but we're back baby this is what we do and we love doing what we do so we we will be vindicated by history 
I just uh, interject at this point as well that we're on Instagram as well. Uh, see here podcast, all one word. Search us and follow us and see the uh, one or two pictures I may post per month if I remember. <laughs> You'll have to get uh, some uh, glamour shots of Pete Townsend. And yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Show that proboscis in, in all its glory. Right. The animated the- gif of the whirlwind that he does with his arm. That goes on and on forever. The, bo- yes. the, the bowling arm. Yeah. <laughs> That was bowling, bowling. <laughs> For this episode, we have to thank you ultimately, the, the sensei of podcasting, Mr. Mike White. Thank you so much, Mike, for being with us for this. You know, as a fellow Hoofin man, I just thank you for taking the time, and we absolutely appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on, guys. It's always a pleasure. How long has it been since the last time? Is it's it been two, a while. Three years? Wow. Not, we, we won't get fooled again. We'll definitely have you back oh. earlier than that. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I forced that one in. It's not great. Yeah, well, it's just a quick one. Oh. I can't think of any. I'm, I'm the uh, I'm the one who's left out. I think we're losing all the new listeners. They're not going to come back. <laughs> we'll have to get you back on that magic bus, Bernie. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. That's our cutest skedaddle. Until next month, look after yourselves. Be nice to each other. Watch some great films. Watch some great documentaries. Listen to some marvelous music. If you've sort of let your love of the Who slide, go back to them. Find a great compiler like Meaty, Beaty, Big and Bouncy, which covers all the early stuff. Watch Quadrophenia. What an amazing film that is. Um, I think you ought to uh, give some time to that at a later stage. But whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you watch, be nice to each other. Don't cough on anyone for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. That's just rude. Wear your face masks, for God's sake. Two meters, mm-hmm. two meters. Stay away. Two meters distance. What are these meters that you're talking about? <laughs> two meteors. <laughs> oh. Two meters. Two feet, two yards. For oh, you. that's right. Oh. In the, in the northern okay. hemisphere. So what, about, about six to eight feet? You need to stay away from uh, <laughs> right. something like that. Keep your own in its front. Oh. Yeah. All right, until next month, all the best. Cheers. Cheers. Well, who are you? My name is Damone Carter, a.k.a. Dem One. And I'm Nate LeBlanc. And we are two-thirds of the crew that hosts the Dad Bod Rap Pod. Our third co-host is internationally acclaimed hip-hop writer David Ma. As the name of the show suggests, Dad Bod Rap Pod is a podcast where men of a certain age discuss, debate, and dissect rap music. While we are somewhat classicist in our tastes and grew up listening to hip-hop from the 80s until now, we are also interested in the music's present and future. Over the past 115 episodes, we have interviewed rap legends like Prince Paul, Del the Funky Homo Sapien, 
Roxanne Chante, Cool Keith, DJ Premier, and even the proto-rap group The Last Poets, just to name a few. We also make it a point to talk to writers, commentators, and creatives shaping the genre. We've interviewed journalists and best-selling authors like Nathaniel Friedman, Jeff Weiss, Hanif Abdul-Rakib, and Adam Mansbach. And as Nate mentioned, even though we are products of the 80s, 90s, we take time out to talk to some of the most important voices in rap today. Groups and individuals like Little Brother, Open Mike Eagle, Billy Woods, and Rap Ferrer. If you don't recognize any of those names, that's okay, because what we love most on this podcast is to introduce old school fans of rap music to new music that we know you will love. New episodes every week on Thursday. We are the Dad Bod Rap Pod. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.